Well, if you've ever read through the book of Genesis, you know that in it there are a number of notable men that are mentioned. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. The list continues, but of all the people that are mentioned there, no man receives more coverage, more chapters, more pages in the book of Genesis than that of Joseph. His story begins in Genesis chapter 30 and verse 22 where his birth is mentioned. And it ends in the closing of Genesis in 50:26 with the words that Joseph died at the age of 110 years. In the months ahead, today and in the months ahead, we're going to begin unpacking the life of Joseph in a little series as we look at him. As we look at his life, we will see how he responded to broken dreams and impossible circumstances with a faith that, with a faith that propelled him from the pit of slavery to the highest pinnacle of power. As we look at how Joseph handled each setback or step forward in his life, we're going to find some lessons that we can apply in our own lives. Today, we're going to spend our time by looking backwards at his family background because in it, we're going to find a flawed foundation that will give us some insight into some of the things that we're going to see in the weeks ahead. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Genesis, to chapter 37. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and we're going to start in chapter 37 today where we get a taste of the turmoil that defined this family. It says in Genesis 37, 1 through 4, Now Joseph lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers and they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now we've all heard about dysfunctional families. Many of us, including myself, come from one. But as we look at Joseph's family, what we see is this one takes the cake. Friends, there is not a reality show or a soap opera that you can think of that has more powder kegs and more storylines than the life of Joseph. I want to begin here by looking at the family tree. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to be the father of his chosen people. Now, you'll recall that Abraham and Sarai, uh, they were Abram and Sarai at first, they had no children. And he said, you will be the father of nations. And so their names were changed. Now, there was a problem because both of these individuals were well past the entry point of AARP. Um, Abraham is 90 years old at the time, and Sarah was about 80. And as the years tick by and they wait for God to give them the son that he had promised, they're still waiting. So Sarah decides to take matters into her own hands. She has a younger handmaiden, a servant, that she gives to Abraham to be his concubine a surrogate, a stand-in for her. Now, her name is Hagar. And through this union, a son is born by the name of Ishmael. Now, God had promised that the chosen line would come through Abraham and Sarah. And so eventually, at the age of 91, Sarah has a son by the name of Isaac. Now, there's turmoil in the home. Uh, Hagar and Sarah don't get along. 
and neither do the boys. You read about the back and forth that is going on. If you look at the Middle East today with the problem between the Arabs and the Jews, here's where it began. Because this is where the two lines came from. God had promised that Abraham's offspring would be the, would, he, he would bless them abundantly and they would be no, more numerous. Well, the Arab line comes through Ishmael. But God had his chosen line, the Jews were to come through Sarah and Abraham. So Hagar and Ishmael are driven from the home. Now Isaac grows up and he marries a woman by the name of Rebekah. And she has twin boys, Jacob, who will later be renamed Israel, and Esau. Now as these two boys are born, as Esau comes out, he's first. But Jacob's other son, I mean, Jacob is literally on his heels. He literally is holding on to his bigger brother's heel. The name Jacob means a heel catcher. It is also a name that describes somebody who is a schemer, a deceiver, a name that is very fitting of this man, as we will see as we go through the story. Now, as these twin boys grow up, Esau is a man's man. He's hairy. He hunts. If he lived today, he'd have a pickup truck with a gun rack, and he would be the guy on Duck Dynasty. (laughs) He is a man's man. He's his father's favorite. Now, Jacob is described as being a mama's boy. He hangs close to home. And so you have a divided allegiance within the home. The story makes clear that Jacob is his mother's favorite and Esau is his father's. Now, psychologists tell us about the the mother and father wounds that can carry forward in life. We know about the dysfunction of homes when parents play favorites and, and all that it causes. Now, sadly, this is something that carried on into Jacob's home. Do you remember what we just read in Genesis 37? Joseph was his father's favorite, and the brothers hated him. Now, you would wonder, why would a man who grew up in in a home like this, having experienced the turmoil firsthand, uh, carry this forward in his own family? But in the presence of, of other examples, in the absence of other examples, I mean, sometimes we turn to the only thing we know, don't we? And in the case of Jacob, that was what he knew. That is what he saw being raised. And for those of us living today, we can look at this part of his life, this part of his story, and see why it is so important for us as parents not to carry forward some of the the bad examples we saw in our own home. I said I grew up in a dysfunctional family. I won't go into the totality of my story, but I, I grew up in a home with a father who was a severe wife and child abuser. Not just physical abuse, not just mental abuse. I mean, we had the whole thing going on. And, and as this was going on in our home, as I was growing up along with my three other brothers and two sisters, I said, I don't want this to be the story of my home. And so I prayed. I asked God that, God, would you let me be a daddy? And would you help it stop with me? Would, would you help me to break this cycle of abuse? I wanted a home that would honor God where my, my kids would feel safe. I'm not a perfect parent. I can, I can assure you of that. But I try to live by the words of Joshua 24:15. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Some of you are here today and you did not have a good example growing up. But you still have an opportunity to break the cycle of what you saw. You have God's word. You have God's guidebook. You have the pattern that God wants our homes to look like. And you can apply that in your own life. 
And as you come to Wayside Chapel, as you're around others who are walking, trying to walk with God, trying to be like Joshua, saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You have relationships of others that can walk with you, that can mentor you. There are classes we offer here. Whether you're a parent, a child, a single person, we have ways to help you learn how to live in a way that honors God. Now, we don't have time to cover the whole story of Jacob and Esau. But, but their dad, Isaac, fast forward to the point where he's old and he's dying. And he calls his boys in and he says, I want to give you a blessing. And as he gives the blessing, it was something very significant. It would be something that would carry forward. Now, Rebecca hears that the blessing is coming and she knows that, that Esau is daddy's favorite and she wants to help out her favorite, Jacob. So she hears the instructions that are given. Jacob uh, is told, uh, I mean, Esau is told, go into the field. You're a hunter. Uh, get some wild game. Bring it back. Make that, that stew that I love so much, and I will give you your blessing. Now, Rebecca's short cycles. She goes to Jacob, and she says, look, go get one of the goats that we have. I know how to make your father's favorite meal. Uh, they bring it in. They kill it. They, she prepares the meal. And then she says, look, you're, you're, you're not the hairy guy. You're not the one, you know, you, you have this squeaky voice as you read the text. You can tell the father's like, who is this? So what she does is she covers her son in animal skin so he'll feel hairy. The father at this point is apparently blind. She takes Esau's clothes and she puts it on him so that he'll smell like his brother. And then she gives uh, the meal she's prepared. And he goes into this tent where the, the father is propped up in his bed. And, and he says, wow, that was quick. And, well, you know, God was gracious to me. He gave me the game. And the father eats it. He's, he's, he's enjoying it. He says, come closer. And he puts his hand and he says, well, you feel, Harry. You smell like uh, Esau, but you don't really sound like him. And then he gives the blessing. He deceives his father. Now, he's given the blessing. He leaves. Esau arrives on the scene. He comes in. He presents the meal. And the father says, you've already been here. No, it wasn't me. Esau figures out, I was tricked. My brother has stolen my blessing. Now, Esau is livid, and he wants revenge. And Rebekah fears that Esau is going to kill Jacob, so she tells Jacob to flee to the hometown of Haran, her hometown where she is from. And as uh, Jacob journeys there, Genesis 28 records an encounter that he had with some of the angels of the Lord. I mean, some of the, the, the angels. This is not the angel of the Lord. We'll get to that in a moment. Now, Jacob, as he's there, he's having this dream. Jacob's ladder, the angels are ascending and descending where he's sleeping. And he says, surely this is the gate of heaven. And he names the place Bethel, which means the house of God. And he says, this is an important place. This is a place I need to return to. And he makes a covenant to come back there to be with God. Now, remember Bethel because it's going to come up later in the story. Now, Jacob journeys on. He gets to his mother's hometown, and he sees a young woman by the name of Rachel who happens to be a relative of his mother. The father is Laban, related to his mother, Rebekah. So this is a family uh, that he can marry into. And he falls in love with this young woman. He goes to the, to the dad, Laban. He makes a deal. He says, I will work seven years for you to pay her dowry, to earn her. And here's a nice, ah, Valentine's moment. It says that he loved her so much that the seven years flew by. Remember that, men, in just a few weeks. <laughs> now, he is sitting there, 
And the, the, the time is up. The wedding night comes. And he's about to receive his bride that he loves so much. Now, Laban is also a master of deception. And he had an older daughter by the name of Leah. And the text tells us she's not a prime prize. She's not as beautiful. She's not as desirable. And Laban is going, I've got a problem. I'm going to be stuck with the older daughter. And so he says, I'm going to trick this deceiver by doing a switcheroo. Now, people sometimes say, how in the world did Jacob not know that the switch had been made? This is a picture of a wedding that I was at in Kazakhstan. When I was over in Kazakhstan in Oktal, I was invited to a wedding. And the Eastern weddings are different than the ones that happen here in the West. Now, as you look at this picture, I want you to focus on this person here because that's the bride. <clears throat> now, it's not like our Western weddings where they, if they're wearing a veil, they're kind of see-through, right? Um, this is your bride. You don't get to see her. Now, the text tells us that Laban adds to the uh, possibility of making sure things are not found because Genesis 29, 22 says, Laban gathers the men for a feast. That's code men for he gets him drunk. This guy has lost uh, all sense of what is going on. And then he sends this hidden bride into a darkened tent. Kind of sounds a little bit like what happened to his dad, doesn't it? The guy can't see what's going on. He's in a tent and uh, he thinks this is Rachel. Morning comes and Jacob realizes, I've got the wrong daughter. Now it's his turn to be loved. But it's too late. The marriage has been consummated. He comes to Laban. He complains. Laban says, well, you know, it's not the way we do things over here. You see, the oldest has to be married first. And so you get Leah. Now, look, it's, it's okay. Just finish the honeymoon week with her. Ladies, that would be a great week, wouldn't it? And then he says, and then you get Rachel next week. But you get to work seven more years to pay for her too. So Genesis 29:30 says, so Jacob went into Rachel also. And indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. Now, the text tells us again that we see Rachel is the favorite. She received more love, more affection. And God sees the plight of Leah. And to help her with her husband's affections, God allows her to conceive children while he keeps Rachel barren. Now, in the years that follow, Leah has six sons and a daughter while Rachel still has none. Now, my own wife and I went through 13 years of infertility. And I know personally the pain of desiring to have children and being unable to do so. And for Rachel, it was, it was compounded. Because in that society, the greatest stigma for a woman was to be sterile, to be barren. And, and everybody's able to say, well, the problem is with you, not your husband, because he's having children. And the woman that he's having children with is your sister, where there's already a sibling rivalry. And do you think that Leah's rubbing her nose in the fact, oh, look at all my kids, and, you know, you have none. Now, Rachel decides to do what Sarah did with Abraham. She says, I'm going to take things into my own hand. She takes her servant, Bilhah, and says, this is going to be the person standing in as my surrogate. She is going to uh, be the one who will have children for me. Now, Bilhah begins to have babies, but Leah suddenly stops. So she fights fire with fire, and she takes her handmaiden, Zilpah, and says, well, here, she's going to stand in for me, and she starts having children. Now, at this point, if you've lost track, 
We have four wives in the home, these 12 boys and girls to go with them. Now, we don't quite have 12 boys yet. I told you this was a great soap opera, right? Can you imagine living in that home and the alliances and the fighting and the things that are happening? Now, on this slide I just put up, you see Rachel has two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. So let me fast forward to that part of the story. In Genesis 30, through 24, we're told, Then God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed to her and opened her womb, so she conceived and bore a son. She said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. So there's this war within the walls that's been going on, and the whole time Rachel is pleading with God, God, would you give me a son? And God answers her request, and she names her son Joseph. The name Joseph literally means add to me. So what she's saying is, God, thank you for this one, but you know what? I want more. May you add to me another. And Benjamin will be the answer to that prayer. Now as we get further into the story and uh, and another time, Rachel, as she gives birth to Benjamin, she tragically dies giving birth. And so you have Rachel, the favorite wife, with two sons, and Benjamin, there's kind of a stigma attached to this boy because Jacob loses his favorite wife when this baby is born. Do you see the weight that is on Joseph's shoulders when it says in Genesis 37, Joseph was his favorite? This is, this is what he holds on to to remember his favorite wife, Rachel. Now, coming back to our story here, Jacob has been serving out the second set of seven years. The 14 years are up. He's been with Laban. Laban, I told you, is a deceiver. He did it at the wedding. He, he, he does it all along. As you read the text for yourselves at home, you'll see that he keeps changing. There's lots of bait and switch deals going on. He says, this is the way I'll compensate you, and then he changes it. And so he's always deceiving Jacob. Now, Jacob is a deceiver himself, and it says that he turns around and he manipulates the system and he keeps coming out on top. Well, finally, he served out the 14 years, and he says, You know what? It's time to get out of here. We're leaving Haran. We're going back to Canaan. And as he goes, Genesis 32 1 says, Jacob has an encounter again with angels of God. And then he has an ultimate encounter. With the pre-incarnate appearance of God himself, the angel of the Lord, and Jacob get into an all-night wrestling match. Now, as the sun is rising, the angel of the Lord tells Jacob to release him, but Jacob says, I won't unless you bless me. So God changes his name from Jacob, a a schemer, to Israel, which means strives with God. He says, you have held on to me. You have wrestled with me. Your name is no longer a schemer, but it is one who strives with God. Now then God touches the socket of his hip. It goes out of joint. And and Jacob ends up with a limp for the rest of his life. Jacob was one who was used to running ahead of God. Jacob was one who was used to doing end arounds. And what God says is, we're going to change you to match the change in your name. No longer are you able to do these end arounds and run ahead of me, but you're going to limp. You're going to have to lean on something, not just a cane, but you're going to have to lean on me the rest of your life. And it was a great and timely lesson for him to learn because as Jacob is going home, guess who he encounters? His brother Esau. Do you remember Esau from years before? The one he deceived, the one who said, I'm going to kill you. 
And Jacob hears that Esau is approaching with a large group of people, an army. And Jacob fears there's going to be a fight. And so he divides up his families. He sends out people. Again, you see the favoritism of Joseph because Joseph is put in the back. The other brothers are put up front. You guys are expendable. And so he's fearful of what's happening. And Jacob, the schemer, says, I'm going to buy my brother's favors back. He sends ahead all these presents and everything. And and Esau encounters all this. And finally, he comes to his brother and he says, look, I don't need all this stuff. I've been blessed myself. God has gone before Jacob. He's, he's, He's brought the reunion to a peaceful conclusion. Our story picks up in Genesis 33, 18 through 20. Now, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padam Aram and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor. This is the father of Shechem, Shechem's father, it says, for 100 pieces of money. Then he entered there an altar and called it El Elah or Israel. Now, earlier in this sermon, I said Bethel was an important place to remember. Do you remember that? If you're looking at a map where Shechem is, guess what? Bethel is not quite there. He needs to go on a few more miles to get to Bethel. He covenanted with God. This is the place I'm coming back. This is where our relationship really began. But we see that as he travels along, he comes to Shechem, and it's a beautiful place. It's well-watered. It's a fertile land. There's a city there with services. It's right along a major trade route where there are financial incentives. So Jacob says, you know what? We're going to stop here. This is home. Now, one might look at this and say, what's the big deal? Bethel's just a day trip up the road. You know, it's, it's not that much farther along. Shechem, Bethel, what's the big deal? That's how compromises go, don't they? We, we look at a compromise and the mindset says, you know, it's, it's just a little thing. It's just a little white lie or, you know, the corner I cut wasn't significant. The way I shorted that order or cheated that person or, hey, I did most of what I said I would do. And when we compromise, we open up the door to bigger things. In Ephesians 4.27, we are told not to give the devil a foothold in our life, literally a toehold. Because what God says is once we give him a beachhead, he will move out from there and he will take more and more ground in our life. Have you seen what happens when water gets in a tiny crack? It can be just a, a, a pinhole, but as the water gets in there and it begins to seep and it begins to, you know, open up and, it, and, and the damage that, that becomes from it is, is enormous. It's, it's the proverbial uh, pebble that can start an avalanche as those rocks cascade down the mountain. Minor compromises cascade into catastrophic consequences. You see, Jacob knew where he needed to be. But he willingly stopped short of that because he said, this is great. This is a nice place. Why go on to be in the house of God when I can sit here and enjoy all the world has to offer? Now, I'm sure he had all sorts of excuses and rationalizations just like we do, right? You know, it's okay to cheat on my taxes because I don't agree with what the government is doing. They're just going to waste my money anyway. I've actually had people tell me, well, you know, Roger, I cheat on my taxes, so I have more money to give to God. What does God tell us? Pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to what is God what is God's. But we rationalize. 
You know, I, I, I know that movie, Fifty Shades of Grey. It's not something I should go see. But hey, it's just fantasy, right? I know it's not real. The Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition that's coming out, you know, that's, that's a sports magazine, right? It's okay to look at. And men and women, what we do is we open the door through little compromises. We rationalize, we, we say it's okay, but what it does is become a cascade, an entry point to higher levels of porn, to relationships that are damaged as our marriage doesn't quite fit the fantasy of, of that movie. Which, by the way, I don't know why women are so enamored, possibly. And I know not all women. That's a blanket statement. But that is a movie that degrades women, that talks about inequality, men of power, how they're playthings, and on and on. And yet you hear about people saying, oh, I can't wait to see the movie. Don't waste your money on something like that and reward Hollywood for the decadence of the culture. And men, put away your Sports Illustrated. Get rid of it. Don't, don't have your wife throw that magazine away before it ever gets on your desk. Those are entry points to where we begin to open the cracks and open the doors to our relationships where we feed our mind and wonder, why do we go further in? And then we get into our relationships and we say, well, you know, it's okay to cheat on my spouse because I'm not satisfied or my boyfriend or girlfriend, I can sleep with them because I love them and I'm going to marry them anyway. And you see how a tiny little thing opens the door to further and further compromise. And those things lead to, to catastrophic consequences. Here, Jacob made a little compromise. He stopped just a few miles short of where he was supposed to do, be. But look at Genesis 34, 1 through 4 to see the destructive chain of events that happens. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He rapes her. Now, this is a a line of all lines. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her after he rapes her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this young girl for a wife. Now Shechem, who's part of the family in power, says, I want this young woman, so he just takes her. He tries to say he loves her, but if he loved her, would he have violated her? You know, people will say anything to get what they want, right? Men and women are in relationships and their, their boyfriend or girlfriend will say, if you really love me, you'll sleep with me. No. If that person really loved you, he wouldn't make that request of you. Real love says, I'm willing to wait. I'm willing to honor God. I'm willing to honor you. Now, as this horrible thing has happened, look at how her father Jacob responds in verse 5. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. What? Jacob hears his daughter is raped. He says, I'm just going to sit back here in the tent. Remote control in my hand, watching TV. He does nothing. As you keep reading the story, it gets even worse because do you know where Dinah is? Dinah didn't come running home in tears and saying, I was just raped. Shechem still has her. 
He's raped her, and he keeps her captive. And he sends his father ahead to say, hey, give this girl to me as a wife. Joseph doesn't go out looking for her. He doesn't get his sons and servants together to go and rescue her. He just passively sits there. Now, if your blood is boiling at this point, I want you to ask yourself something. How often are we guilty of a similar passivity in our own life? And you're thinking, if somebody raped my daughter, there, there wouldn't be any passivity, right? Well, men, let me ask you something. How often do we fight for our families? How often do we look around at the culture in which we live and we watch how our children are being taken captive by the culture and the things they're being immersed in, the, the internet and the, the games they're playing and the, the things they're exposed to, and, and how often do we just sit back and say, you know, can't do anything about it. Some of us are sitting back and and allowing the world to go after our children, our families, and even our own lives. When is enough enough? When do we take a stand for God? When do we take a stand for righteousness? When are we going to have the hard conversations with our kids? When are we going to set the boundaries and say, look, I don't care if all your friends are doing that. You're not going to do it. And just because everybody else is there, you're not going to be there. I want to know who the people are that you're going out with. I want to know where you're hanging out. I I, I want to see all of your text messages, your emails, the things. Parents, there are things you can put on their phones to monitor their, their use. My kids have phones, two of them at this point, my high schooler and my junior higher. And I told them, these phones are in your hands, but mommy and daddy own them. We pay for the data. We pay for this. We have a right to see everything and anything. We will have your passwords. We will be in your life. And parents, you should be doing that as well. Parents, are you putting boundaries not just on your own kids but on yourselves as well? Who are you hanging out with? What are the books, the magazines, the movies that you're watching? Where are the places that you surf on the web? There are are programs you can get as adults to put on your use of electronic media like Covenant Eyes, where a trusted accountability partner can have access to all the places you're going, whether it's your spouse or another man or another woman in your life. When are we going to stop being passive like Jacob and sitting back? This is Jacob, the one who has wrestled with God, and he sits back and he doesn't fight for his family. He doesn't go against the corrupt culture that is around him. Now the story continues in verses 6 through 7. Then Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob come in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were angry, very angry, because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. Now finally... We see somebody who's willing to say, this is wrong. Their moral indignation is right, but unfortunately, the way they're about to go about dealing with it goes south in a hurry. You can read the rest of the story on your own, but Shechem's father says, look, uh, we'll give you whatever you want if you will give Dinah to my son. He wants her. There's no repentance, no remorse. He simply says, let me buy your daughter. He treats her like a harlot, a prostitute. It's a business transaction. Yeah, he had sex with her. He's going to marry her. You know, what's the price? What's it going to cost? 
And then he goes on to say, you know, forget about all this covenant stuff with God. You know what? Let, why should we stop with this one marriage? Your sons can marry our daughters. You guys can do business with us. You're living here. We're together. Let's merge our families. You know, the world is your oyster. Everything is here being laid at your feet. All you have to do is go further into your compromise and step farther and farther away from God. Now, since her father isn't going to do anything about it, the sons of Jacob say, we will. Yet what they do is what they've learned from watching Grandpa Laban as he's been deceiving their dad, the deceiver. And they've been watching dad in the home, how he deceives Grandpa Laban. And so they come up with a, a plan of their own. Look at Genesis thirty-four fourteen. They say to Hamar, this, this patriarch, the father of the other side, we can't enter into an agreement like this with pagan people such as yourselves. But if all of the men in your town are willing to be circumcised, we'll agree. Now, remember, circumcision was the sign of the covenant. It said you are part of God's people. And so they say, if you'll just go through the ritual, uh, then sure, it'll be great. Now, the ritual means nothing unless there is a true circumcision of the heart where there is a true turning to the true God, Yahweh, Jehovah. But the boys really don't care if these pagan people are converted and become followers of the true God. All they're doing is laying the trap. Now, Hamar, Hamar, the father in Shechem, go back and they sell it to the other men of the city. And this is how they do it. They say, hey, listen. We're going to get rich. You've seen all the stuff these guys have. Their livestock and possessions will eventually become ours. We're going to get their women. Circumcision is a small price to pay for what we're going to get. Look, we'll draw them into our area, into our compromise, and then we get all their stuff. The men of Shechem say, okay, yeah, that's that's a deal. Now, Circumcision here isn't a quick procedure like what happens on baby boys in a hospital or, or what's done under anesthesia in some cases. We're talking about adult men having things done with knives to places that are going to be incapacitating. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Verse 25 tells us, Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. The boys took something as sacred as the sign of the covenant, and they said, this is the trap we are going to use to incapacitate the fighting force. And they go through town kicking in the doors and hacking and killing everybody, the men. And then as you read on in verse 29, it says they looted the city, taking the wealth, the women, and the children as plunder. They became the very thing they were against. People abusing ruthless power and violence to get what they wanted. Not just revenge, but then they start grabbing women and children and things as plunder. As we're watching this mess continue to spiral down, do you remember how it all started? It was just a little compromise. Jacob said, let's stop here instead of going on to the house of God. And his compromise goes into destruction for his family and for the people of the area. He settled for less than God wanted, and he ended up reaping destruction for his family and others. Now, if this were the end of the story, it'd be pretty depressing, wouldn't it? And it wouldn't be much help to those of us in the day in which we live. 
But I want you to look at Genesis 35, 1 through 7. Because here we see the hope that God brings into this dark mess. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there. And make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. He said, well, God, I I bought land here. I I made an altar to you here. And God says, I don't want this. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears, signs of this pagan worship. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there and he called the place El Bethel, the house of God. There's no substitute, he says, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Even in the midst of all the mistakes, even in the mess that Jacob is making, God continues to pursue him. He says to Jacob, you get to hit the reset button. You need to come back to me. And you need to go where you need to be in Bethel, the house of God. Jacob has been a failure in this story, but God says, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. And he invites Jacob to get back on the right road and to walk with him. And friends, this is what God does with each and every one of us today. God says, I don't care how big of a mess you have made of your life. I don't care how absent you've been as a father or a mother in your home. I don't care about the mistakes that you've made. And don't listen to our enemy called Satan who will lie to you and say, God doesn't want anything to do with you. He's done with you. God says, I'm never done with you. I've never given up on you. Even when you were at your worst, even when you were the farthest from me, all you have to do is look at the cross of Christ because Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his own love toward us in this while we were yet sinners, while we were still in our sin and our mess. It says Christ died for us. God says, when you were at your worst in rebellion and far from me, I loved you so much I came after you and I brought you back to myself if You will take the bridge that I have given, the cross of Christ that is laid across that chasm of sin that separates you from me. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. God says, whatever mess you've made of your life, you need to repent. That word means to stop, to realize what you're doing is wrong and you're going in the wrong way. Repentance means to stop, to turn around and to come back to come back to God. And he says, I've given you that bridge if you will just step out on it. Friends, if you're here today and you have never in faith turned from your sins into Jesus to be your savior, he says, my arms are open wide to you today. I didn't love you this much or this much. I loved you this much and I died for you and I'm waiting for you to come home. He tells Jacob, repent. Turn away from all this wrong stuff. Get back on the road and come back to where you belong. 
And as God calls Jacob back to himself, we see a change in Jacob's heart. Up to this point, he's been passive. But now he takes action. He calls his family together and he calls them to repentance. He, he says it needs to be real and tangible. He says, get rid of your idols. Purify yourself. Change your clothes. Make an outward change to match the inward change in your life. As you look at your life today, where do you need to make some changes? Are you a parent who's been passive? God says, step up and be the mom or dad. Your kids don't need a best friend, a cool parent. They need somebody who will love them enough to step in and stand in the gap and fight for them. Hebrews says that God disciplines everyone he accepts as a son. True love is saying to your kid, this is going to hurt me more than you. And it really does, as you know, as parents. But we're willing to do the hard things. To draw them back, to pull them back from the edge. Are there steps you need to take to be a better spiritual influence? Not just in your home, but at work or in school, or in the circles of friends that you run with? Have you been drawn into the culture, or are you the light that is exposing the things in the world and drawing people to, to, to God through your life? Some of us have been confessing sins over and over again, and what God says is, you know what? Stop talking about it. Do something. Get rid of it. Like Jacob said, get these idols out of your home. Change your clothes. Change your ways. Stop just talking about being sorry for your sin and do something. When Jesus talked about sin, he said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, friends, he didn't mean literally go out there and mutilate your body. I don't want to see you coming in next week with a patch over your eye or like that guy did in China where he cut off his hand because he was so addicted to the Internet. He said, this is the only way I can stop. God says, I want you to be serious. I want you to take some tangible steps in your life. Repentance is serious stuff. It's more than just saying, I'm sorry. And then going back and doing the same thing. Repentance is where we see our sin as God does, which is where we say, this is, this is abominable. I need to turn from it and I need to turn back to God and I need to walk with him. Now, in this passage, Jacob goes to Bethel, the house of God. He builds an altar, a sacred place where he can begin to spend time with God. Now, as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, there are still mistakes that are made. There are still problems that are come. There, Jacob still slips into his old way of life. When I tell you today to turn back to God, to repent, it doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect, that you're never going to sin again, that you're never going to make more mistakes. In those times where we do that, God tells us to hit the reset button again. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God says, Each time you fall down, get back up. I'm here with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jacob and his family are those that are going to continue to make mistakes. But as we follow Joseph and his family, we'll see how God takes these hard things and he turns them into an amazing story of redemption. And friends, he can do the same thing in your own life as well. If we're willing to take the step today of stepping out onto the cross and coming to Christ for the first time if you never have, or being men and women who are willing to do an about face if we've been walking away from God and of some sin and saying, today it stops. Today I'm turning around and God, with your help, I'm going to come back to you. I want you to bow your heads in prayer.
I want you to think about your life for a moment and some areas that you've been at war with, some things you've been wrestling with, some places that you need to make some changes and give those to God today. Ask him for his help. And I'll close our time in prayer in just a moment. Let's pray. Lord God, you know each of our lives here today. You know the places where we've made compromises. You know the times we've stopped short of full obedience. You know the hidden things of sin that we have in our lives. Father, would we be willing today to turn from those things, to get serious about our walk with you, to be men and women, boys and girls who put away the the things of the world that don't belong in our life and instead to turn to you, to come home, to walk with you, to get back on the right path. We thank you, Lord, that in the midst of the mess that we've made with our lives, that you didn't leave us, you didn't give up on us, but you've been with us every step of the way, that you loved us too much to leave us like we were. And so you met us where we are, as sinners. And you provided the bridge, you pointed the way home, and you said, if we will do these things, we can walk closer with you. We thank you, Lord, for providing that way home through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray if there's anyone here today who's never come to faith, that this would be the day where they they turn to you, Jesus, that they accept you as their Savior. And Father, as they turn from their sins and and walk with you, would you give them the strength and the power they need in their own lives? And for all of us, Lord, who have made that decision in the past, we've fallen off the path. We've, We've done things we shouldn't. Today, Father, would you help us to get back on the right road, to go where we belong, walk in with you. So help us, Lord, each and every one, every man, woman, boy, and girl here today to turn to you where we'll find your mercy and grace, where we'll see your story of redemption that you have written and continue to write in our lives every day. So we commit our lives anew to you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in your precious name that we pray and thank you. Amen. Our prayer leaders at the front, if you need somebody to talk with, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.